Matthew, the 25th chapter, uh, verses 14 through 30. Hear these words. For it is if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you? that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even when they have, will they be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Ooh, the, the word of God for the people of God indeed. Yeah. It's supposed to be good news. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? In 1999, in a museum in Switzerland, there was an art piece created by Maurizio Catalan. It was the first time that it was viewed. It was entitled The Ninth Hour, and it represents Pope John Paul II lying on the ground after being struck by a meteorite. 
The title of the work alludes to the moment when Jesus Christ cries out, why have you forsaken me, and then dies on the cross. Now, Maurizio Catalan is one of the most popular contemporary artists, but he is also one of the most controversial. He takes freely from the real world using people and objects that create what is called by some an irreverent operation. He uses playful and provocative materials, objects, and gestures, and he sets them in a challenging context. A challenging context that force commentary and engagement. His work garners attention because of the context. Now, religious commentary aside, I want you to think, if you will, about the last time you were at a museum and you were enjoying the beautiful paintings, maybe some, you know, portraits, some artwork, maybe some sculptures. Now, can you imagine if you would turn the corner and see this? Can you imagine turning the corner in a museum and seeing this? It's jarring, isn't it? It's jarring because of the context. All right, let's, let's take our meteorite away, thank you. Just as jarring if we think about context is the reading from today's gospel lesson, if we think about it from our own perspective, which is as challenging as it is to think about it, a U.S. capitalist standpoint. Many say that we have botched this parable of the talents because we read it from our context. It's so easy to think of this as a usual parable with the takeaway message of what we might have heard before, whatever God gives you, invest and multiply for the sake of God's kingdom. But our first clue that this might not be the case comes from what we read, or in fact what we don't read at the beginning of this parable. Let me give you the beginnings of some other parables in the Gospel of Matthew. The parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Or the parable of the weeds and the wheat from Matthew 13, 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to... Matthew 13, 31, the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 13, 33, the parable of the leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. And finally, one more time, the kingdom of heaven is like comes from Matthew 25, verse 1, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. But today's text, the parable of the talents, it begins differently. Simply stated, we hear, for it is as if a man going on a journey... If this isn't an analogy of the kingdom of God, then what is it? So let's look at the parable in its context to help discern what might be at the heart of the matter. Now Jesus was speaking at this time to a gathering of starving peasant Galileans. It was most likely that a person listening to Jesus speak at this time was a rural farmer, someone who depended on the land for their well-being. And as such, the character of the master in this parable would not sit too well with the listeners. 
Wealthy people in this time were not to be people, were not people to be admired or adored. And while it's hard for us to separate our own notions of wealth from success, those listening to Jesus knew rich people only as those who were greedy. For these first listeners of Jesus preaching, rich was not an adjective you would like to have applied to you. So as we begin the parable, we don't necessarily know that the man is rich by the word, but we know that he not only has the means to travel and the servants to tend to his matters while he's gone, but he also has at least eight talents to leave behind. We are so enmeshed with our wealth-driven culture that we crave what we believe this parable is talking about. We love our profit and our outcome so much that we imagine Jesus lauding the servants who gain the most on the investment. But this isn't the reality for those who listen in its original context. As commentators Bruce Molina and John Pilch explain, those listeners lived in a world of limited good, meaning for them that all the good and all the Reese's were thought as a limited quantity that was distributed at creation. Think of it as a pie, if you will, and one, one person had a bigger slice of the pie, it meant that there were smaller slices of the pie for everyone else. Those with wealth were always subject to scrutiny in Jesus' teaching. They were suspect because the only way that their wealth could be increased in the context of their worldview was to somehow remove resources from others. Or perhaps they found a little bit of a loophole in managing their money so that others were generating wealth on their behalf. Notice that when this man was going on a journey, he entrusted his property to them. He didn't actually give them anything. There was no transfer of property or resource ownership. This man's property was his property all along. It's so easy for us to think that we shouldn't be too hard on the man embarking on a journey because he's encouraging hard work and it seems as though he is hoping for a positive outcome from trusting his wealth to his servants. But in the context of Jesus' teaching, as Pilch writes, his listener would find the man greedy, arrogant, and opportunistic. This is a situation where the rich person, like other rich people at the time, has great power to keep what is his and increase it. And in fact, when the third servant is criticized, he comes back at the man by saying, I knew you were a rich man a harsh man reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you didn't scatter seeds. And the thing is, the man doesn't disagree with him. This servant is not being chided for a lack of being personally industrious. The man said to him, you ought to have invested my money. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. The man isn't mad that the servant didn't generate something else for the servant. He's mad that the servant didn't generate extra for him. Now, maybe this is a part of the story that's fascinating to me because I'm a weightlifter, but a talent then weighed between 80 and 130 pounds. It was equal to about 20 years of an ordinary person's labor. So how did one person have not only one, but at least 
eight talents in excess. Well, we're not exactly sure, but other documented wealthy people of the time did the usual things, and it's not unlike what wealthy people in our time do. Engaging in trade, getting goods to market, managing imports and exports, and lending money to people at interest. Many of the people who would need to engage in a loan like this are people who would be listening to Jesus, people who relied on the land for their well-being. And in seasons where there was drought or if someone in their family became ill and couldn't use the land to its, uh, to its greatest capabilities, making ends meet would be nearly impossible. And so they would find the best and sometimes the only interest rate they could. They would put up their land as collateral and they would keep working as hard as they could. But as Barbara Brown Taylor once preached, by the time you noticed what 60% interest really meant, it was too late. Your land went into foreclosure and quicker than you could say Leviticus. She continues, the land was not yours anymore. But that didn't mean that you always had to leave. You could also stay as long as you were willing to work for your former lender. And if you could stand to watch your family's fields repurposed as, as olive groves or vineyards, something more easily monetized that would appeal to a more upscale market at home and abroad. Can you imagine being so in debt that you had to give up everything that belonged to you but stay and watch it be transferred to someone else's wealth? So does this mean that the servants, the slaves mentioned in this story were those who labored with no other options? Maybe not. The servants of the parable were most likely middlemen whose jobs were to manage those workers, to keep the books, to collect the debts. In that time, they were free, however, to make a little something on the side for themselves as long as the master's interests were well covered. What was entrusted to them was a reflection of their own power within the system. Verse 15 says, to each according to his ability. So where the first two servants did exactly what the powerful and wealthy man expected, the third slave, the third slave had the honor to halt this system of greed. If he was in this position, he had some ability, some power within the system, but at this moment, he chose to stop. Upon the departure of the master, there were no instructions given. The master didn't tell them what to do except to safeguard it. So was this servant being purposefully defiant? No. Now, we know that the Bible has a complicated history, and none of the parables of Jesus as we know them are exactly transcribed straight from the mouth of Jesus. So what then is the moral of Matthew's telling of this parable? What is the good news of this gospel, both for those who first listened to it and for us today? So back in the fourth century, there was a version of this parable, this Matthew version. It got under the skin of a bishop in Caesarea named Eusebius. Eusebius reports that there was a different version of the parable, a better version that we should listen to, one in which the first servant is imprisoned, the second slave is reprimanded, and the third slave is rewarded and blessed with joy. 
So why is Matthew's version the one that we ended up with and not this lost gospel telling? We don't really know for sure, but we can see if we look at the physical placement of this parable that it comes just before the analogy of the sheep and the goats. You know that one, right? Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick and in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, very truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The community of Christ followers at that time was awaiting the parousia or the second coming. They were waiting for Jesus to come back. But the expected return of Jesus was not happening as those first Christ followers thought it would be. And so they start to write down the stories. They they're trying to make meaning out of their experiences to sustain them as they wait. So without taking this parable out of its place within the gospel, without taking it out of its context, what does it mean for us on this Sunday? Indeed, the very Sunday that we have been asked to bring back these humble cards with the hopes and dreams and intentions for our own resources. Perhaps it means that we can take a page from that third slave's book and let our cards be the place for us where power is redistributed. This can be a place where the distribution of wealth becomes a bit more even and where those who have need can receive it without fear of oppression. Because this is a place where it's already happening. This is a place where within two weeks a coat rack has become full so that our neighbors aren't cold. This is a place where our students spent time shopping for food so that more people can gather around tables with their family and friends. This is a place where countless families trust their children to be cared for and educated. This is a place where inclusion matters. This is a place where we are committed to growth and discipleship. This is a place where we sing and pray and read read scripture. It's already happening. William Herzog encourages us to view parables in the context of God's alternative economy, an economy where the values of love and justice and compassion outweigh the world's values of accumulation and power. Faithful stewardship then involves risk-taking in alignment with God's transformative vision for the world. And if Linworth is the place where we have nestled our discipleship in Jesus Christ, then stewardship involves for us placing some of our resources in the care of this congregation, which is not solely focused on accumulating wealth, but indeed using what we have to honor and share God's love in the world. Our mission is striving to be a welcoming and inclusive faith community built on Christ's example. We empower one another to share that God is love, that you are loved, and that all are welcome here. But let's be honest, if our life together as a congregation is kind of like a stroll through the museum, think back to strolling through the museum, how many times for you has stewardship felt like the place where you turn the corner and bam, there's something out of context with what you've been experiencing? It might leave you puzzled, 
confused, maybe a bit uncomfortable. But what if instead we truly thought of stewardship as just a thing that we do to fulfill our mission? If we are committed to the Christ-centered pursuit of inclusive community, evolving faith, authentic relationships, and global justice, then our financial resources are just one piece of the larger discipleship puzzle. This is not a place where you will be scolded for your lack of prudent investing. This is a place where we will together work to break the cycles that keep us beholden to masters who have no interest in our well-being. We serve a master who wants nothing for us except love and wholeness. And the reason this parable is different is because I would venture to say this is not a parable where the master is equal to God. Who would want to serve a God that only had God's own interest in mind? Who would want to serve a God that cared not for our own well-being, but only for the well-being and the accumulation of wealth and power? And so when we hear that the third slave by this master is thrown into the outer darkness, Perhaps it's because the outer darkness in the world of wealth and power is where God resides. God resides where people have needs. God resides where people rely on each other. God resides in community. God resides in hope. So many of you have sent back your your card, the card that shares what you hope to give in 2024. We are so grateful. If you haven't yet, we would be blessed by your estimation so that we can continue to make every dollar count without the guesswork. We are able to plan then for the ways that we live and worship and work together because of how you are sharing your hearts and your resources on these cards. And so as the band comes to lead us in our closing song, I just invite you to prayerfully consider the ways that you will give. Not because you are expected to multiply your resources, but indeed because you believe that this is a place where the cycles of injustice and oppression stop and that the ways of God's love in the world can be shared with others. And the thing I love about the cards this year is that we put the mission on the back. We put the mission right there so that our giving is tied up in our mission. We cannot do what we do without giving, and we can't give without hoping to fulfill the mission. And so we hope that as you prayerfully consider what you might contribute to our work together, we just ask that God's spirit of generosity, of grace and mercy would be poured out upon each of us this day and all days. Amen. Amen.